First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of NFP, the fifth largest insurance broker in the world, combining local expertise with access to global capabilities and solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Ladies and gentlemen of the House and Senate, distinguished guests, I have the high honor of introducing the governor, Mike Pence. Six months after delivering his State of the State address, then Indiana Governor Mike Pence, his family and staff heard this. I would like to introduce a man who I truly believe will be outstanding in every way and will be the next vice president of the United States, Governor Mike Pence. A life changer not only for Mike Pence, but also for people close to him, like GOP supporter and Fort Wayne native Mark Lauder. From the Indiana State House to the White House, a journey few get to take, but one that Mark Lauder did, and he shares the experience, lessons learned, and life after operating on the biggest stage in American government. He's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast, presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Mark Lauder grew up in the Summit City, Fort Wayne. He graduated from Snyder High School, where he got the broadcasting bug. They had a TV program there, and guess who was sports anchor during his senior year? Well, he moved on down I-69 to Ball State University, where he earned a degree in political science and telecommunications, two areas that would serve him very well. After Ball State, Mark worked in various TV and radio jobs, including producing newscasts at WRTV in Indianapolis. But then the political bug bit him. He left news and served in roles for a number of Indiana Republican officeholders over the years, from City Hall to the State House to the White House. Mark Lauder has some really interesting stories to share. And it is a great pleasure of mine to welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast, Mark Lauder, a longtime friend. Uh, Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, Gary. How are you? Uh, very good. You've got the uh, beautiful uh, Washington uh, uh, landscape in back of you and uh, known you for a long time. And we go back to uh, our days at Channel 6. You were a news producer here in, here in Indianapolis uh, back then. Did you ever think you would end up where you are and where you have been for these last few years? No, to be honest with you, it, it was quite a, a blessing, but also a little bit of a surprise. I, I remember distinctly a few years ago, uh, I was doing this week with George Stephanopoulos. I was on the power panel and uh, one of our old colleagues from Channel 6 texted me because I used to produce the <laughs> companion show with that program from Channel 6 way back in the 90s. Yeah. Little did I ever know that I would ever actually be on the real program, you know, a couple of decades later. Yeah, yeah, and I want to get get into that because you have uh, frequented some of the top news talk shows in the country a number of times. But you are currently at uh, the America First Policy Institute, Chief Communications Officer there. First of all, the uh, the institute. Give us uh, kind of a thumbnail of uh, the institute and what you're doing now. Yeah, so uh, as the Trump administration was winding down. Typically, what happens is the the administration officials all disperse to the winds to various corporate gigs and other think tanks and things like that that are in long play. But 
uh, our CEO and president, Brooke Rollins, who was the uh, head of the Domestic Policy Council, got together with Linda McMahon, who was the small business administrator, and Larry Kudlow, who was obviously the chair of the National Economic Council, uh, and said, we can't just let all this talent go away. And so they came up with this idea to house basically the biggest minds in the America First movement uh, under one roof. Uh, and so they started to build out what became the America First Policy Institute just over a year ago. And we've gone from basically zero people to now over 140 staffers. We have 21 wow. different policy centers, six former cabinet secretaries, eight senior White House staffers are, are helping to lead this effort. And it's really I say it fills in the gaps. You know, I mean, obviously, Gary, you and I know, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Reagan revolution. And back in 1980, they were called Reagan Democrats and they reelected Reagan in 84, kept the good times going in 88. But as soon as we had a blip in the economy, some poorly run campaigns and a brilliantly run campaign, they went back to being Democrats because they were they were they bought the man. But were they really buying the mission? Yeah. So really, the foundation here is to take the policies that were championed by the Trump administration, the Trump-Pence administration, and put the academic research behind it, put the thought behind it, do the white papers, the research, and then help build a framework. Whether you're running for state house or White House, you can go to the, get all this research, build the momentum for an America first policy agenda, whether your name is you know Donald Trump or, or anyone else. You can still fight for the things he was fighting for, whether he's on the ballot or not. Yeah. What, what's a typical day like uh, for you? Uh, a lot going on, obviously, in the economy and in the political world. What's, uh, what's a typical day like for you? Well, it's very similar. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of what we would call rapid response going on with what's, what's going on in the day's news events, whether it's the inflation report that came out you know, just this morning or looking ahead to what's coming out in the following weeks. But then it's also dealing on the academic or the research side where we have, you know, our Center for American Security wants to do a white paper on uh, the Biden administration's decision to open up a new consular office in Palestine. And what does that mean? And really doing the longer term detail. So we're thinking about both the short term, but then also looking ahead to the long term. And then, of course, the challenge is, how do I get the media interested in like a 28-page white paper yeah, <laughs> on some yeah. very meaty topics? Yeah. You mentioned the media, and obviously you deal and have dealt uh, with media at a very high level for a number of years. Is, is the news media biased? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think first and foremost, the media has always been biased to news. Oh, what's going on? I remember one of our news directors back in the day reminding me that the first three letters of news spell new. And so, you know, getting that point across, that yeah. hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, you know, I do think that there are some certain that there are some certain inherent biases at the national level. Uh, but yeah. also in my time from local television, whether it was in Indiana or in the other many stops that I made in my local television, I would say it's not prevalent. Yeah, uh, everyone has their own personal beliefs, but sure. we really did uh, our best to try to, you know, bury those, put those behind us and just tell the news. And I think that's why, especially at an at a local level, local news is still so much more trusted yeah. uh, than what we see at the national level. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and I, I guess my question was kind of geared more to the national level. And as you look at it, because you you lived it, but how would you describe the coverage of the current administration versus the coverage of the, the Trump administration? I mean, there are a lot of things going on in the economy. And again, not to 
not to take a position one way or the other, but, uh, you know, inflation and a number of really high profile issues uh, that are out there now. How would you rate how the national media is covering the current administration versus uh, the Trump administration? Well, I think to a certain extent, I think we've seen a change here recently, and and maybe it's post-Afghanistan, but I think it's uh, especially in the most recent months when it's been with gas prices, baby formula, and then overall inflation. I think that the media has, has cr- kind of crossed that threshold where they've realized we've got to be critical. We have to be more critical and and hold the administration to account. Uh, I mean, there's always a honeymoon period, whether you're uh, with the media or even in Congress, that people give you kind of like a launching platform to get yourself up and running. But at some point, everyone, I think, has to make that choice. And I think we've started to see that change in the national media narrative. You know, I was reading uh, I was reading Marlon Fitzwater's book, uh, who was the famous White House press secretary for both Reagan and George H.W., and he was actually complaining about the same narrative, you know, uh, and, and about the same bias in the media is like we, w- we would address one economic statistic. The media would just change to another one to be critical. So I think they're doing their jobs. I think they also realize that, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say it's driven by polls or ratings, but as you and I both know, Gary, I mean, one of the one of the balances in news is the news you need to know and the news you want to know. Right. And yeah. and yeah. recognizing that balance, I think that, that what we've seen in the national media is that people want to know about inflation. They want to know about the causes of gas or, or whatever. Uh, it's not just stuff that they need. They they want to know. They need to know it as yeah. well. Yeah. So much back and forth on, on both sides of the aisle, if you will. A point to the fact that this is a divided nation. Can in your view, Mark, can um, can real substantive change happen in this political environment where where both sides seem entrenched in their particular viewpoints and there doesn't seem to be much interest or effort even to to reach across the aisle to get things done yeah it's it's definitely concerning you know and it's one of the things i remember uh when i was working for uh then governor mitch daniels who reminded us that 90 percent of what you're asking for doesn't mean that you came up as a failure but so far and and especially i think what we're seeing it it in the general public in many cases, is that if you don't get 100%, it's considered a failure, that you can't accept 90%, and you can still fight for, champion, campaign for that last 10%. Doesn't mean you're giving up on it, but let's not sacrifice the need for perfection over moving the ball forward. And I think we'll eventually get there, but it's it's very difficult right now, and especially with all of the congressional districts being so hyper- well, gerrymandered uh, on both sides of the aisle. You know, there are Democrat districts, there are Republican districts, and there are not very many toss-up districts, which means that most of the of the candidates are probably more worried about being challenged from within their party than they are from the opposition. You got out of TV news and went to work in the communications business political world and have worked for some some interesting people. You uh, communications director for uh, then-Mayor Greg Ballard here in Indianapolis, Worked for Mike Pence, Donald Trump. You mentioned Mitch Daniels. I want to ask you just about each of those uh, individuals. Greg Ballard, obviously a surprise winner, uh, served two terms. Uh, Really an interesting guy. Uh, I I think a lot of people on both sides would say he did really a yeoman's job as 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 mayor. What give give us your your thoughts, your remembrances in in what was like to work for Greg Ballard? 
Yeah, uh, Mayor Ballard was, I mean, he was he, he was such a remarkable individual. I mean, he's, he's a logistics officer, you know, in the Marine Corps. And, and really, I think he approached the job like a logistics officer, like, okay, here's the problem. Here's the solution. How do we get there and get and just get it done? Uh, he really wasn't much into the political games or the, or the political strategy side of it because he was just a guy. I mean, he used to love to tell the story that, I mean, Mrs. Ballard, Winnie, was basically tired of hearing him complain about things and then told him <laughs> to step up and do something about it. And he put his name on the ballot and he won. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he really approached it from a different aspect than, you know, than than other office holders or candidates that I've worked with who obviously understand the political side. Doesn't mean that they were going to sacrifice the goal, but they recognize the politics. Mayor Ballard just wanted to get the job done. He yeah. wanted to fill potholes, plow streets, you know, take care of crime and uh, and do those basic blocking and tackling things, which really at a local level is what you get uh, reelected for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mitch Daniels. Probably the smartest person I've ever met in real life. Uh, it was my first job, basically, out in politics after I had left the media. And you know, I remember back in the the '04 campaign, he had this laundry list. If I we, we turned it into a giant map of 86 different policy proposals, and the polls had always shown that he was leading that race. He was going to likely win that race. It was never really a close race. But then he had some very controversial things uh, on that on that roadmap to Indiana's comeback, uh, including daylight savings time and things like that. And a lot of us in the political world were kept saying, you know, then it was Mitch, not governor like Mitch, stop talking about this. We're winning. We're winning big. (laughs) And he looked at us. I mean, didn't even blink an eye. And he said, we're running to do big things. And when we talk about it and if we are elected, we will have the mandate to do big things. Hmm. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to campaign on it. I'll convince people and then we'll get it done. And by goodness, he did. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. really did. Yeah. Uh, Mike Pence. Mike Pence. You know, the funny thing, I used to joke with him uh, as vice president because I hired him when I was at Channel 6. I was running our uh, 96 election coverage <laughs> and we hired conservative talk show host Mike Pence as our conservative commentator. And so every so often I'd remind him that uh, he used to work for me at one point. <laughs> and uh, he would always reply, not true anymore, is it, Mark? And I'm like, no, Mr. <laughs> Vice President, it's not. It's just a warm human being. Uh, his family, obviously very close to them. And, uh, you know, someone with such, I would say, purpose. Uh, you know, he, he's in, he was in this for the, for the reason to help change America uh, or to help change our country. He, he always talked about how really, the only job he ever wanted was to represent his hometown of Columbus. And he was obviously able to do that, obviously able to serve as governor. You know, I remember being I was on his reelection campaign for governor when Donald Trump called. And, uh, you know, what a drastic change, obviously, that put into all of our lives. Uh, and it was such an honor and privilege to to go with them on that campaign and in the White House. But really, the only thing he ever wanted to do was just like uphold the Constitution, uphold the law and see if we could make a difference. What do you remember uh, about when that call came in and it, it, and it then appeared likely that uh, he was under consideration and then ultimately uh, it was the, uh, the candidate for VP? What, what do you remember about that? Any stories you can tell? <laughs> oh, yeah. Some great stories. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite, and our friends love to tell it. So obviously, as a former journalist, I, I still kind of try to uphold those standards that I was trained with at Ball State. Uh, and I've always told our colleagues, like, like, do not tell me something that I'm going to have to lie about. 
So uh, the night that the call came in, we knew the night, we knew that the call was likely to come in that night. And I got a call a short time later from our campaign chairman who basically said, I need you to be in New York tomorrow between two and four. That's all I was told. Be in New York tomorrow between two and four. Don't ask me any questions because then I don't have to say why I'm going. So I booked a flight out of Indianapolis to LaGuardia. And if you remember correctly, the Trump, the president's plane broke down the night before. He was stranded in Indianapolis. All of the nominees ended up coming to Indianapolis to meet with the family. And uh, so I go the next morning and get, uh, get on a plane to LaGuardia. And who's standing there but my old friend and colleague, Rafael Sanchez, uh-huh. <laughs> and also Major Garrett from CBS News, who's in covering the Trump campaign. So I'm standing there and Major comes up to me and he's like, Mark Lauder, but Mike Pence is uh, you know, comms director on a direct flight to uh, New York. Hang on a second. Immediately tweets it out that I'm on the plane. And that's how the news broke because they, I mean, even though I said, I'm just going to New York for meetings. Uh, you know, obviously the, the cat was kind of out of the bag yeah. and, uh, and then they, uh, they proceeded to interview me on the plane, uh, as soon as the seatbelt sign turned off <laughs> and I was kind of a captive, uh, of yeah. that moment. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, you know, he is, uh, he, he is what he seems to be. It's not, it's not, but I would also say the one thing that, that I was always taken aback by with, the, with the president. You can tell he's in the hospitality industry because he's always concerned about making sure you are comfortable. You have what you need. I still remember I was in New York one day doing a bunch of interviews and Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, called and said, hey, uh, he wants to see you tomorrow afternoon. Can you come over to the Oval Office? So I get to the Oval Office and it's Sarah, myself, I think Mercedes Schlapp and Kellyanne were in with the president. And I'm sitting in front of the Resolute desk. And the president over and over again is like, do you need coffee? Do you want a Diet Coke? Is there anything we can get you? You know, are, are you okay? And I'm sitting there thinking now, granted, I've been in the Oval Office many, many times, but you're never comfortable sitting in the Oval right. Office. I'm like, yeah. no, I'm not. You know, <laughs> you don't want to say it, but I'm like, I'm not comfortable, Mr. President. You know, yeah. what, what do we want to talk about here? And he saw me on television, wanted to talk about the upcoming campaign, thought things were going well, and just wanted to kind of just download with me for 30 or 40 minutes. And I mean, it was just so... He was just so caring about your comfort. You can tell uh-huh. he's a man who owns, you know, hotels and golf courses. <laughs> and, you know, he wants to make sure that the guests are taken care of. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, talk shows, the TV shows, and you appeared on on all of them, the, you know, Meet the Press and Face the Nation, all the cable shows. Describe what that's like, because, you know, as someone who's been on TV for a long time, you know, reporting, that, that's one thing. But we're, when you're the one being grilled, that's a different <laughs> a different story. What was the experience like? Uh, it, it, it's surreal, but I think the one thing, you know, it's no different than if I was doing, you know, and obviously I wasn't on, on, on TV very much when I was in uh, local news because I was behind the scenes, but it's really no different. It's just a, a much bigger audience. Uh, I still remember the first interview I did in the White House with the White House behind me. Uh, I think the vice president was getting ready to go overseas to North or to South Korea. And I looked down in the in the monitor and saw the White House standing, you know, behind me uh, as I'm getting ready to do this interview. And I realized that all the interviews I had ever done, whether it was with for Mitch or for Mayor Ballard, the ratings came back the next day. I think 1.8 million people were watching Fox News at that time. I'm like, that's probably more in that one interview that's ever watched me, you know, <laughs> over the course of my entire 10 yeah. or 12 years. Yeah. But my biggest takeaway on the national media and is that 
what you see and what it is are really two different things. Uh I would almost, I would almost compare it to a professional sporting event because, you know, yeah, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning are going to go, you know, bomb for bomb and, and throw it at each other, you know, nonstop. And as soon as the whistle stops, they're shaking hands. They're talking about playing in each other's golf outings. Yeah. And, I mean, for the most part, most of those interviews, we would, you know, obviously the reporters would do their jobs. We're doing our jobs. And as soon as the camera turns off, we're talking about the weather. We're talking about sports. We're talking about the same thing that everyone else talks about. And I think it's really a problem because I've had many people come up to me and they tell me, you know, how do you sit across the table from usually it's a liberal commentator. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, they're such a horrible person. They're a horrible human being. (laughs) And I'm like, no, they're not. They're actually Mm -hmm. wonderful people. We happen to disagree. And what you don't see Mm -hmm. is that I'm a professional at doing this. He is a professional at doing this. And when the camera turns off, we're everyday people, just like everyone else. And I wish wish most of the American people could see what happens in the green room or what happens in the commercial breaks. Because just because we disagree with someone doesn't mean that they're evil, doesn't mean that they're a bad human being. We happen to have a disagreement we need to get back to the time when we can be what agreeably disagreeable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Is, is that possible? I back to my divided nation question earlier. Do you think that's possible? A lot of people talk about it, but it just seems that that you know things are so entrenched now that that it's not a possibility, at least in the near term. Uh, I don't know if it's possible in the near term. I would hope it would be. Um, I hope it does not take some sort of a national or global catastrophe to right. bring us together like we were, say, post 9-11. You know, that it always has been a unifying factor, those types of events. But obviously, no one would ever wish for that. But ultimately, I think it's a pendulum. Uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, you know, you only had the morning newspaper, the afternoon newspaper. Then obviously came the advent of radio and television, then cable television, now 24 hour, you know, and even social media. And mm-hmm. I think as it, people are getting more and more attuned to receiving the information, seeing the information that I think that they're going to realize that, you know, yes, I've got my partisan differences or my policy differences, but my neighbor is still my neighbor. We still all root for the Colts or the Pacers or, you know, watching the 500. And it doesn't matter what you, who you voted for or what you support. We're still all Hoosiers. And we have much more with Mark Lauder after the break, uh, growing up in Fort Wayne, uh, going to Ball State University and a lot more with Business and Beyond podcast continues. First Person Advisors is now a subsidiary of National Financial Partners, the fifth largest insurance broker and consultant in the world. Develop your total reward strategies all in one place with the combination of First Person's local expertise and NFP's global resources and integrated solutions. Learn more at firstpersonadvisors.com. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Mark Lauder, currently the America First Policy Institute Chief Communications Officer, uh, a media a veteran from uh, Indiana and uh, elsewhere, Ball State grad, has done a lot of things uh, in the public eye. Growing up in Fort Wayne, I, I read this in some of the research, Mark, you stuffed envelopes 
for a Democratic mayor for uh, <laughs> for a Democrat candidate for mayor in Fort Wayne. Right. Was that was that Win Moses? It was Win Moses. And yeah. the story he used to like to tell uh, my father and Win went to high school together. And uh, so I, I think well, that would have been what, 1979. So I'd have been 10 years old and went with my dad uh, and helped stuff envelopes for his first campaign. Uh, they had a falling out. My father became a Reagan Republican. But uh, when Moses never missed an opportunity to remind me that my entry into politics was on the Democrat side. That, on his That campaign. is funny. And, 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 you know, I don't know if you remember this, but my first job out of college was in Fort Wayne. So I covered when Moses, I worked at channel 33 and channel 21 from 81 to 83 before I came to, uh, to Indianapolis. So it covered when Moses, uh, quite a bit. Still had probably one of the best campaign slogans of all time. When, when wins, we all win. Yes. I remember. That's very good. Hey, uh, what was, so you grew up in Fort Wayne, right? I did. Yes. What was, what was, uh, what was life like? What was, uh, uh growing up in Fort Wayne like? I mean, it was absolutely outstanding. Uh, you know, middle class upbringing. My father was a Fort Wayne City police officer for most of my time growing up. In fact, he's the reason I went into television news uh, and why I wanted to, because my father was leading the Crime Stoppers Initiative across Northeast Ohio or Northwest Ohio and Northeast Indiana and was often on television. And so I still remember going with him probably right or before or after Little League practice uh, to Channel 21, the ABC affiliate in uh, in Fort Wayne, where my father was going to do an on-set interview and all the lights, the cameras, the typewriters, and you were probably anchoring, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, right then and there, I was sitting in the news director's office what, waiting for this uh, live interview. And I, I'm like, this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Uh, I want to go into television news. And then I actually interned uh, at Channel 33. Uh, I was an on-air intern after high school uh, wow. before then going to Ball State and majoring in uh, telecommunications and political science. So uh, Ball State was a natural choice for you. Obviously, great uh, telecom program. You consider any other places for college? Uh, well, obviously, I, I'm a lifelong Hoosier fan, and it hurt <laughs> a lot <laughs> to uh, to ha- to say, you know, Ball State had has the better telecommunications or, or broadcast journalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the time, IU was more of a print journalism background, and so I felt I had to make the right decision for, uh, you know, for my career uh, and yeah. what I wanted to do. And uh, so, no, it was, it was it was a great time there. It's changed dramatically since then. I haven't been back very often, but uh, I, I used to go back and actually speak to some of the government uh, and political science classes uh, from time to time. What is your take on on, on the education uh, of journalists, if you will? Uh, has that cha- it, it certainly has changed from a structural standpoint. How, how would you um, rate or gauge the uh, the level of, of training, if you will, for journalists these days? It, it is night and day different than from what we went through or what we do. I mean, obviously, you know, now most, especially in some of the smaller markets where you're starting out, you're what's called a multimedia journalist, where you're your own camera person and the reporter uh, and doing all of those things, things that we would have never considered, uh, you know, even back in, in a smaller market such yeah. as Fort Wayne, it was not something like that that would ever happen. So you have to have so many more disciplines. Uh, and the one thing, you know, There's a lot of theory. There's a lot of basics in terms of how you, you know, report, how you write, those kinds of things. But I think the one thing I would probably always stress is the need to have a broad education. You need to have a basics of economics. You have to have the basics of government, uh, whether it's state and local government or the federal level. You know, there's so many things you have to cover in your job if you want to be successful at it. 
obviously I was able to do that. I, I knew that going in from my own background and experiences, but I think a lot of folks who just thought if I get this degree with the prerequisites that you have, you know, that's going to be enough when you need probably a little bit more, uh, you know, in some of those main areas. Social media, um, like it or not, is part of that equation these days. What's your take on on where we're headed from a social media standpoint? Obviously, a lot of attention being paid to uh, the future of Twitter and Elon Musk and uh, those types of things and the so-called truth councils. Uh, where, where does the whole social media thing uh, shake out in your view? That it, it's it's great and it's also concerning. You know, I mean, I, I go back to that journalism training, and as you and I know so well, Gary, you know, how many story ideas do we get coming into the newsroom every day? News releases or viewer callers or tips or whatever. And it's your job as that trained journalist to to kind of weed out what's the real news, what's the story here, who has standing to make these right. accusations or comments and decide, you know, what are you going to include? With social media, there is none of that. And so it's obviously the people who are deciding that this is what my truth is. This is what that truth is. I'm going to offer my opinion, whether I, you know, whether it's informed or not, which everyone has a right to their own opinion. I wrote an op-ed about this recently, even if it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to have filters. And I think society is going to develop its own internal. I don't mean government or big tech kind of filters, but I think the, the, as the technology improves, I think the general public will develop better internal sensors of, wait a minute, this doesn't add up with what I know, or, but wait a minute, this is something else that I'm reading somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Let's look ahead. Uh, first of all, to the midterm election, obviously you come from a, a, a certain point of view, but where do you see things, uh, uh shaking out again, if you will, in the midterm election? Well, I think most people agree, and even most journalists agree, that it's likely to be a Republican uh, you know, wave in, in the midterms. And that's also historically true, uh, that the president and party in power typically loses seats in both houses of Congress. The, the question is going to be, is how does that, what, where's the next step? And, and that's one of the things we're working on here. The challenge and the fear I have is that when you look at the economy, you know, as our polls show uh, internally here at uh, the America First Policy Institute, the economy is issue one, two, and three uh, on the minds of the American mm -hmm. voter. And uh, obviously, there's not a great story to tell. And so that's one of the things I, I worry that uh, of how some other outside factors are going to play into the narrative, whether it's the upcoming decision in the uh, Dobbs case, mm -hmm. whether it's obviously, you know, obviously the horrific shootings that we've seen here recently, uh, the mass shootings, mm -hmm. crime in general. What What is the other side going to do to motivate their base, to get out their base, and to try to make the case that they, they deserve to continue to be in power? Those are going to be divisive kind of arguments. And we all know that, but it does worry me when you already have a very divided America, a very divided electorate, if we're going to try to divide them even more in a, in that ditch to keep power. Will Donald Trump run in 2024? You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the only <laughs> thing, I, what do you think? You know, I mean, he obviously talks like he wants to. He keeps teasing, you know, out the fact that, you know, and I think right now everyone's focus should be on 22. The one thing I often say is that the one I can't tell you who's going to be on the on the ballot, whether it'll be you know Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, or any of the other many names that are mentioned. The one thing I can guarantee you is that whoever gets the nominee uh, the nomination in twenty four will be running on Trump policies. 
and the America first agenda. Now, how they couch that, how they, you know, work that into a broader narrative, I think is obviously what each candidate will bring and how they'll sell that to the electorate. But we know the policies worked. Now we just have to obviously figure out who's going to be that standard bearer and then get them across the finish line. What's next for Mark, uh, Mark Lauder? Would you, would you consider getting into politics? Uh, no, probably not. I mean, not, uh, not putting my name on the ballot. I've, I've, I've had some people ask that before, and it's, it's obviously an honor to have, to be considered for it. I enjoyed my time behind the scenes in, in television and relatively behind the scenes in, uh, you know, even though there's a very public component to my job, most of what I do is the behind the scenes advising, uh, of candidates. And I like that. And, uh, so Never can say never, but probably not in my future. <laughs> yeah. What is your future? Are you, are you going to be a DC guy? You're going to be part of that, that uh, equation, if you will, for the foreseeable future? Well, when I moved uh, back up here a few months ago from Florida, my wife told me, because we had to give up our house, our golf club, the weather in Florida. Uh, she's like, you get one more of these and then we're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm on a time clock right now for probably three or four more years. Uh, obviously, ideally, hopefully get, uh, you know, candidates uh, supporting our work back into the White House and in Congress, probably go help them out as they get up and running. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I don't know what the future will hold after that. It could be uh, back into, uh, you know, into corporate world. Obviously, there could be some media and other, uh, you know, options out there. We'll have we'll have to see. Very good. Well, whatever it is, we'll have you back to talk about it. Mark Lauder, the Chief Communications Officer for America First Policy Institute. And if I can add one thing, the first producer of the first episode of Inside Indiana Business with Gary Dick. I, you are absolutely correct. I forgot about that. Wow. Randy Tobias and Sid Terrell. Took us about 90 minutes to tape that show, right? You you did. I remember (laughs) that like it was yesterday. And that, believe it or not, that was 1998, so 24 years ago. Hard to believe. Yep. We both uh, come a long way, I guess you could tell. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. But Mark, hey, real pleasure catching up with you and best of luck to you going forward. Thanks, Gary. You too. All right. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7 at InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. We'll see you next time.